You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. It's great to see you here in the room. Uh, thanks for joining us if you're with us online for the live stream this morning uh, as well. I want to welcome you and say uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, this morning, uh, we continue on in our series on the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk this morning about being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. We're going to look at Ephesians 5 in just a minute. Now, if you have any history... Uh, any experience broadly in the church, and you hear the phrase filled with the Spirit or being Spirit-filled, depending on your experience, you may be nervous uh, right now. Well, don't worry, I can't get within six feet of you, so uh, I'll keep my distance. But you may be nervous about that. What does that mean? Because you were somewhere at some point, and somebody said, man, she's Spirit-filled. And you met her, and you thought, she's odd. Uh, She's sort of ethereal and out of touch with reality. She is oversaved. Just calm down a little bit. And you thought, if she's filled, but I'm not sure that's the Spirit. I'm not sure he would take responsibility for that behavior. And you said, I'm not sure I want to be Spirit-filled because that seems kind of strange. Sometimes entire ministries or churches define themselves as Spirit-filled over against other regular Christians that don't have the Spirit in the same way. And sometimes you may have been exposed to that. You may have felt like, well, I must be a second-class citizen because I'm not spirit-filled like they are. Or maybe you see ministries and ministers who just do odd things. Recently, there was a viral video of a spirit-filled pastor who just declared an end to coronavirus and just literally blew it away. And I think we need to keep praying. I don't think that worked as best I'm, I'm telling. It's not over yet. Uh, you know, we're all sitting apart and have masks on. So sometimes spirit-filled people, spirit-filled churches, maybe, very, maybe sincere and, and well-meaning, sometimes you've been exposed to that and you say, you know what, uh, th- I just I, I think I don't belong here because I'm not sure about all that. Well, the term may have been co-opted by certain people and may have actually even been misused, but we're going to look today at a text that actually commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So this isn't optional. We want to understand what it means. And if you remember last week, if you were here and heard the sermon, we learned a primary role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. We read that at the beginning of the service today. So whatever it means to be Spirit-filled, it's going to mean a grander view of Christ— a deeper experience of Jesus, a, a more wonderful expression of his grace. Actually, to be filled with the Spirit is going to be closer to Jesus, which is nothing to be afraid of, but something to embrace, someone to embrace. When we are filled with the Spirit, ultimately, we will see the work of Christ uh, more clearly. So let's look at this phrase in Ephesians 5. Um, I'm just going to start in verse 18. Yeah, that's where we started good. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 18 and read through 21. This is one sentence. And so I just love Paul. He writes these long sentences that your English teacher would say, well, that's like a run-on sentence or something, but it's the Word of God. So I love it. Here we go. Verse 18, this is God's holy Word. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, here's where we find this verse in the book of Ephesians, and the context really helps us understand this, even though we didn't read the context. But here's how the book of Ephesians works. It's six chapters, and it's evenly divided. The first three chapters are all about what God has done for us. There's no commands in there. It doesn't tell you to do anything. All it does is tell you what God has done for you, uh, choosing you before time, saving you by grace. Wonderful. Then in chapter 4, which is equally wonderful, chapters 4 through 6 begin to explain to us what does it look like to know Christ. So now you're a new person, you know him, so what is life supposed to look like in all of your relationships and all of your activities? It's a really sort of all-inclusive kind of life that is described in chapters 4 through 6. And so what Paul does in chapters 4 through 6, which is where we are, is he begins to contrast this is what you were, but this is what you are. And so he's giving opposites and saying, put on your new life and get rid of your old life because you're a new person. So, for instance, he says things like this, don't lie anymore now that you believe in Christ. Don't lie anymore, tell your neighbor the truth. Don't steal anymore, he says, work. And work so that you can earn money and have enough to help someone else. He says, don't be bitter anymore, but be tender-hearted." and forgive other people. He's talking about this new life. He says, don't live in chapter 5, don't live in the darkness anymore, but walk in the light. All of these contrasts that even if you're new to the Bible, if you're not a Christian, you're new to the Bible, it would all make total sense to you. Okay, now that you know Christ, don't lie, tell the truth. That makes sense. But when we come to verse 18, there's a contrast that it just doesn't make sense on the surface. He says, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, but, now what would you expect? Be sober. That's what you would expect. Don't be drunk with wine, but be sober. But that's not what he says. He says, don't, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he's talking about an experience of being drunk, and he's contrasting it with the experience of being filled with the Spirit, just as he contrasts telling the truth with lying. So in other words, you may have lived this way before, but now live this way. You may have lived this way before, but now live this way. It's very very straightforward until we get here. So what does this mean to be filled with the Spirit? Now, to be fair, uh, I do want to say that in the book of Acts, the term being filled with the Spirit is used in a different way, and we'll look at that before this series is over, a look at some of the ideas there. In the book of Acts, being filled with the Spirit is tied to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit first comes, is poured out upon God's people in the, in the New Covenant church, and the pouring out of the Spirit is tied to boldness, it's tied to witness and evangelism, and it's tied to the giving of spiritual gifts. 
But here he seems to be talking about something different. He's using this in a different way, similar language to Luke in Acts, but he's using it in a different way. And given all the contrast that we've had in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the way we understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit in context is to understand its opposite. So I'm going to give a very brief meditation on being drunk. Uh, which I thought about titling the sermon that, but uh, that, that would be provocative, but probably not very, be very helpful. So to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, we have to understand what he is forbidding. What is he forbidding? Do not get drunk with wine. Now the command, he's not forbidding the drinking of wine. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, wine is described as a gift, actually a gift from God to gladden the heart of man. Uh, but but alcohol, though it's spoken of at times in the Bible as a gift, it, it also is spoken of with strong warnings. Strong warnings. And here is a warning to not drink too much wine and get to a state of drunkenness. Now, why would he address drunkenness and what is the primary problem for the Christian and drunkenness? Well, it's in this little phrase that's next. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, that's not a word we use real often, debauchery, but here's what debauchery means. Debauchery is wild, out-of-control living. One of the most succinct definitions of debauchery I've seen is disorderly living without self-control. So debauchery is kind of a lifestyle, it's an approach to life that lacks self-control. So Paul is opposed, God, God is opposed to being drunk because it puts one in a state where we lack self-control. You know, sometimes alcohol is viewed, somebody drinks and they're a little hyper, at least initially, a bit hyper, and, and it almost appears like they're freer, and it almost appears like alcohol is a stimulant, but alcohol is a depressant, and alcohol depresses the critical faculties of the brain, so that when you have too much alcohol, what happens in your brain is the critical faculties are depressed, you lose your inhibitions, you lose your ability to make sound judgments, and uh, you lose self-control. If you drink too much, you lose self-control physically. You could pass out. Uh, you could actually die. So you, you lose control mentally of your faculties. And we've all seen this. Certainly you've been somewhere in public and you've seen the increasing effect of more and more alcohol and how it diminishes one's faculties. I haven't been to a baseball game in a while. None of us are doing that right now, right? But whenever I go to a baseball game, I always sit around drunk people. I don't know why. I guess I buy seats in the outfield, and that's where the drunks sit. But if you, if you notice, there's a very big difference between the first pitch and the kind of things people are saying there if they're drinking the whole game by the seventh inning. So at the first pitch, it's go Rangers, uh, high five. You know, it's very mellow. But by the seventh inning, they're saying very different things very loudly. And they're not shouting out quotations of Plato's Republic, I'll let you know. They're shouting out vulgar things. They're heckling players. They're yelling irrational things at the umpire. What has happened between the first pitch and the seventh inning? Their critical faculties have been diminished so that they're saying and doing things they would never say and do if they were sober. Now, why is this necessary to talk about? Because this is how we understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit is the exact opposite of that, just like telling the truth is the opposite of lying. 
being filled with the Spirit means to be under a different influence. We speak of a drunk person and say they are under the influence of alcohol. That's the key to interpreting the passage, under the influence. He, Paul is saying, don't be under the influence of too much wine. Be under the influence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will fill us to act differently as well. The drunk person acts different than they do when they're sober. The Spirit-filled person acts different than they did before they knew Christ. And the Spirit indwelt them. So to be filled with the Spirit is not to have our critical faculties depressed. It's to have our critical faculties sharpened and enlightened. It's to be clearer than we would be without the Holy Spirit. It's to be more discerning than we would be without the Holy Spirit. It's to be more spiritually alert and sober than we would without the Holy Spirit. It's the exact opposite of the guys in the outfield that I described. It's coming to a a sharpening of our spiritual faculties. That's why in the passage we looked at last week, John 16, it says, Jesus says, when I send the Spirit, he will lead you into all truth. He won't lead you into deception. He won't lead you into a lack of self-control. He won't lead you into uh, inability to make sound judgments. He'll lead you into clearer judgments. The Word of God will shape your judgments. Come under that influence. Galatians 5, which Caleb preached on a few weeks ago, says that when the Holy Spirit is active in us, he produces self-control. So the exact opposite of being drunk. The Holy Spirit gives us a self-control that we would not have by just gritting our teeth and trying a little harder. It's supernatural. To be filled with the Spirit is to have more self-control than you had before you were a Christian or that one could have apart from the Spirit. Because he not only shapes our ability to have self-control, he shapes our motives for it. It's for the glory of God and for the good of others. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to understand Scripture. If you're not a Christian, you will read the Scripture without the Holy Spirit living in you. You will read the Scripture, and it will not make sense. It will not, it will not grip your heart like the person who reads with the Holy Spirit, who reads the Scripture, and it comes alive. It makes sense. It changes our hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes us sober. He makes us alert. He gives us discernment. And that's why being under the influence of the Spirit is the exact opposite of being under the influence of drunkenness. And therefore, why we, under, why we need to understand what it means to be drunk, to understand the contrast of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Live your life with the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit dwells in all believers. Romans 8, 9, Romans 8, verse 9 says that as believers, we all have the Spirit. You cannot even be of Christ if you don't have the Spirit, the Bible says. But there's a difference in having the Spirit and the metaphor here of being filled with the Spirit. We all have the Spirit, but to be filled with the Spirit means the Spirit has us. The Spirit has us. That is, that's like alcohol. It has you. It controls you. It influences your behavior when you're drunk. In the same way, we all have the Spirit, but to be filled with the Spirit is to have the, the Spirit has us. He has influence. He has control. He has, he's actively uh, 
active in our hearts and minds as we are living daily, communing with him, fellowshipping with him, shaped by him, changed by him, convicted by him, encouraged by him, enabled by him. He's, an in, he's the enabling power of God who enables us to walk with Christ. He animates us. Been, ever been around a drunk person? They're animated by something that doesn't look like they are when they're sober. To be filled with the Spirit is to be animated by supernatural power in our daily, regular activities. To be animated by a power that brings self-control, godliness, love, a heart for the Savior, a heart for others. This is what the Spirit does when he fills us. He, he works the opposite of drunkenness. The problem is that we just don't think much about the Holy Spirit. We, we don't think about this stuff that I'm talking about. We don't really live aware of the Spirit of God, most of us, very often. Now, we may, when we come here and we worship together, and we may in an unusual moment, but most of us aren't living our lives aware, thinking about the Holy Spirit. We're, we're not really anticipating his influence. The person who willingly drinks too much is anticipating an influence. But don't do that. Live anticipating the influence of the Holy Spirit, is what Paul says here. Anticipating. Our pattern isn't to anticipate the power of the Spirit throughout the day to give us strength and temptation and to help us love someone that's hard to love and to give us self-control when we're very tempted. We're not often looking to the Holy Spirit in those situations. Rather, the pattern for many of us is fail, feel bad, try harder. Fail, feel bad, try harder. And God's solution is you are no longer what you once were. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and he wants to fill you. That is influence your thinking and activity to make you a different person. It's not do bad, feel bad. I mean, uh, fail, feel bad, do better. It's fail, repent by the power of the Holy Spirit and be changed from the inside out to, to live the new life Christ has given you. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You cannot obey God apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot change for the glory of God without the Spirit of God changing you. And this is what distinguishes Christianity from other religions. It's not a set of moral values that you agree with and then try hard to accomplish. It's rather the Spirit of God who changes you as you look to him, yield to him, desire him, invite him, read his word, and invite his power to change you that he changes you. That is, you are filled with the Spirit. See, to live for God, you must be filled with God. To live for God, you must be filled with God. The Christian life is not a self-help program with a few Bible verses thrown in. There's a lot of books and stuff you read and see like that. It goes, this feels like just a self-help program with a few quotes from Jesus, along with all kinds of other people, that, that, that is really not going to change my life. The person of the Holy Spirit, here's, here's what changes our life. A dynamic relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit who enables you to follow Jesus in all of life. That's being filled with the Spirit. Francis Chan wrote, a, wrote a, a provocative book a few years ago called The Forgotten God. The Forgotten God. It's about the Holy Spirit. 
And he's talking about the great damage that is done by neglecting the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And in there he says this. Here's a quote. If I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. If I wanted to thwart God's kingdom, stop the kingdom advancing, stop the purposes of God, one of my main strategies would to make church-going Christians forget the Holy Spirit or to react to the Holy Spirit because you saw something that seemed odd. You can't follow Christ without the Holy Spirit. Oh, you can be a good moral church person. But you can't be the glorious new creation that God desires you to be in daily life. Well, the verb is interesting. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. I'm going to drill down slightly on that. Be filled with the Spirit. I don't make a practice of tossing around, uh, you know, lots of original language stuff uh, because I'm neither a Hebrew nor a Greek scholar, but this is really uniform. If you read any commentators, they will tell you what I'm telling you. This isn't some kind of amazing insight that one Greek scholar said. This is what everybody says. Uh, And that's that understanding the verb be filled, it's a bit difficult to capture the essence of it in language that's not clunky and cumbersome in English. So the, the verb be filled is in the imperative mood. That is, it's a command. It's an imperative. So It could be an indicative statement, or it could be an imperative, something that we are called to do. So it puts responsibility on us. Be filled is a command. Puts responsibility on us. But it's in the passive voice. It's not active. So it means a passive voice means when something's in the passive voice, it means something must be done to you. You can't can't do it yourself. So you're commanded to be filled, but you can't fill yourself. You can't make yourself Filled, so there's a tension there, isn't there? And then the other thing about the verb is that it is in a continuous action. It's not a one-time thing, but in Greek you can communicate a verb that is a continuous, ongoing, we could say, action. And this verb is that way. So it's not be filled with the Spirit, and you can check that off your spiritual bucket list. I got that experience. This is saying this is an ongoing experience in life. So commentators say that the best way to probably translate this, but it's super clunky, would be be being, ongoing, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that's to be our posture in the Christian life, in all of life. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. This means we're to regularly be saying, come Holy Spirit, Lord, help me. Strengthen me with the power of your presence. Fill me up. Grant me a vibrant relationship with you. And this touches all of life. This isn't just on Sunday mornings. It's not just in our quiet time. But it's like it's throughout the day being recognizing our need for God and specifically recognizing our need for the Holy Spirit to help us to help our hearts, to help our attitudes, uh, to help our, uh, our planning, to, to help our, the way we view others, to help how we do what's in front of us to do that maybe we don't want to do in the next hour or the next afternoon or the next week. Lord, help me. Make me like Christ. Be being filled. I can't do this myself. Lord, I can't make myself influenced by you. 
So would you influence my thinking and my heart? We ask. I think being a- asking for the Spirit to change us, asking for the Spirit's influence is, is totally appropriate. And maybe you would hinder, maybe you would uh, be careful about that because you go, well, the Romans 8 says I've already got the Spirit. And yet you're called to continually be receptive of the filling of the Spirit. And so there's, there's, there's two truths here. He's never left you. You're not saying, Holy Spirit, you don't exist in me, so would you come into me for the first time? That's not what you're saying. But you're saying, would you continue to help me? Now, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Again, in the book of Acts, the term is used differently, and it, it, it has in mind like empowering for ministry. So if you read the book of Acts and you t- see people filled with the Spirit, oftentimes what you're going to see is bold evangelism or just boldness in the face of persecution um, or spiritual gifts uh, being expressed with uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. But here, he doesn't mention any of those things. He doesn't mention the fruit of the Spirit he, by term. He didn't use that term. He doesn't mention the fruit of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit right here. He gives three expressions. Now, I believe this happens in all of life, but he gives three expressions. Again, this is one sentence. He gives three expressions of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. The first one is worship. And specifically, not all of life worship, but when I say worship here, I mean singing worship, like corporate worship. That's what he says. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. So the implication here is if you're filled with the Spirit, this is what that looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So the first is singing. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will uh, be led to sing to God. And what is in view here is singing corporately. He says, addressing one another. So as we sing, we're obviously singing to the Lord, but we're also singing in a way that we are speaking truth to one another. When we just sang in here, we were singing true words that we heard from one another that encouraged us. Us. There's something there about addressing truth to one another. I cannot do singing in the shower. I cannot do singing a worship song driving down the freeway. Those are great expressions. That's the second part of the verse. He talks about that. that, that those are great expressions. But here, you can't address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs if you can't hear one another and you can't sing to one another. And so that's why this is so powerful, uh, even in what just happened this morning as we sang. I thought, this is so powerful. I spend a lot of my life in isolation, as many of you do these days. Um, even as pastors, we're doing most of our stuff. The only time we're all together is on Sundays, uh, just because if one of us, uh, you know, tests positive, and we've, a couple of us have been tested uh, because we we're exposed, but if one of us tests positive, we're all negative. If one of us tests positive, then everybody's got to test positive, and while we're waiting on a t- test, we couldn't gather if it happened over a weekend. None of the pastors could be here. So we got designated survivor. Whoever's preaching has to be in the isolation booth, so you can't get it from anyone else. So if they all go down, at least we have one person, one pastor to show up on Sundays. So that's how we're living, except on Sunday, and we don't get too close then. So we're, we're on Zoom meetings. We're on phone calls. I'm in my home office. I do a few meetings, not a ton in person. But so that's, I'm isolated. And so when I come in here and I hear your voices addressing me, it's the highlight of my week. It is the highlight of the week. It should be under normal circumstances as well, but I really feel it in these days. It's not just Sundays, though. He says, making, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So he's saying, when the Spirit fills you, there's a song in your heart. 
There's, God does something in you so that there's a song that must come out. There's a, there's a truth that resonates deep in your soul. I mean, drunk people are very free with public singing. And he's saying, don't be the drunk person, you know, uh, at the ball game, falling over, singing, take me out to the ball game at the seventh inning stretch. Be the Christian who's not like that, but who is alert to the work of God, alert to the purposes of Christ, and thankful for what he's done so that a song just resides in our hearts. And that in difficulty, the Holy Spirit's go-to is to cause us to sing out to God, even in lament or in pain, to cry out to God, singing a melody in our heart. The, sermons, uh, the song is not just the warm-up for the sermon. It's the gospel melody that the Spirit puts in our hearts throughout the week that comes forth together corporately as we sing of who he is. So here Paul says, to be filled is to sing. To be filled is to sing. Number two, he says gratitude is a sign of being filled with the Spirit. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's to be a thankful person, not just because we have manners, not just because we're nice. It's not being a nice person that's in view here. It's being someone who's encountered the grace of God, and grace always produces gratitude because grace is a gift. It's something God does for you that you cannot earn or deserve. You've earned the exact opposite. And so though you have run from God, though you have hated God, though you have opposed God, he comes running to you with mercy and grace to embrace you as his child, and that produces gratitude. All gratitude for the Christian starts with the cross and resurrection, an awareness that I'm not being treated in life as I deserve. I'm being treated with mercy and with grace, and that produces a gratitude instead of a grumbling and complaining. You cannot look at an empty tomb as a Christian and respond with grumbling and complaining. It's gratitude. And so the Spirit will always glorify Jesus, John 16. And when we see Christ, we're aware of the grace of God. I am not being treated as I deserve. I am being treated by God with great mercy and grace. Therefore, this verse, I am to give thanks in everything, always to God the Father. This is a word for today, church, because grumbling and complaining is the national language of America right now. It is our tongue. And I know people are stressed and everybody's on their last nerve and we're polarized. So in all of, I can't remember a time in my life where a grateful tongue would be more of a witness of a light in the darkness. My wife has a part-time job that Uh, calls her to interact with the public, much of the public. And uh, so she'll come home from work and tell me various things that happened during the day. And uh, I don't know if any of you do work with the public. People are crazy right now. People aren't, the public's not walking in with gratitude and sweetness of spirit. Thank you for what you're doing. No, we are entitled. We are demanding. We are, you will not tell me what to do. I want that. I want that. I deserve this. Get out of here. I can't believe. Did you hear what they're doing? Oh, my goodness. 
That's why there's a rash of viral videos. This is the viral video of, of the coronavirus age or the, the Karen videos. And it's not just middle-aged white women that are going crazy right now. The, the, the Karen videos, it's all kinds of people that are complaining, grumbling, demanding. And it's not just Karen. I am the same way. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in life right now that I don't like, and I find the default is complaining. The default is judgment. The default is critique. But the controlling influence of the Spirit will change our speech. He will change our attitude. He will change our tongue so that our words are sweet and gracious and filled with gratitude. And that goes for not only what I verbally say, but what I text and what I post on social media. It all's one package. It's how you express yourself. Grateful, sweet, aware that I'm not being treated as I deserve, or grumbling and complaining and demanding of the very God who has forgiven all my sins and has granted me an eternity with him. Here's the final one of being filled with the Spirit here, he says. It's submission. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission. There's a popular word in our culture. Everybody's leaning in on that one. We should have put that on the sign out front. There wouldn't be, there's a few seats. There'd be no seats if we taught on submission because we love that, he said sarcastically. Submitting out of reverence for Christ. The Holy Spirit will call us to submit to Christ and humbly submit to one another. What does that mean? It means that we relate to one another, especially in the church, one another here as Christians, but we relate to one another with humility, with deference with an attitude that your preferences are more important than mine, that we die to ourselves. Listen, you cannot do that in the flesh. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to be influenced by the Holy Spirit to think that way. But that's how we are called to think. Only the Spirit produces that. I mean, one page over in Philippians 2, the next book of the Bible, it says this in verse, chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What would happen if the church got filled with the Spirit and we encountered the public and we were in our jobs and in our families and in our culture and on our Zoom calls or where, however you're doing life these days, And we counted other people as more important than ourselves. Think about all the division around us right now. Racial division, political division, views of the coronavirus division, mask-wearing division. Did he just say that? Yes! Mask-wearing division, racial division, all the divisions going on. How would the church look different if we all said, I'm submitted to one another. I'm deferring to you. Your preferences matter more than mine. Jesus, who did not account equality with God, this thing to be grasped, Philippians 2, but he laid down his life to the point of death. Jesus gave his life for us. And I can't even relate to you because you have a different opinion about some issue about a coronavirus chart somewhere. Are you kidding? The Spirit of God gives us a posture of humility, love, deference. I'm the least important in the room, not not self-asserting my point of view and requiring everybody to hear it and agree. 
No, to follow Jesus is to die. You check your preferences at the door of conversion. You check your self-assertion at that moment. You die, and we die daily. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, not some goofy, ethereal nonsense. It's character. It's sacrifice. It's love. It's death to self. I want to ask you, are we drunk on our own opinions and our own preferences, or are we filled with the Spirit? Because if we're filled with the Spirit, we'll be singing from a melody in our heart. We'll be thanking God and thanking others. And we'll be with our brothers and sisters living in a way that says, you're more important than me. I prefer you. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I need the Spirit. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask the Spirit to help us, uh, meet us, fill us. And then we're going to go back and sing again. Because this, this passage says, address one another, sing with spiritual hymns. So we're going to do that. We're going to ask for the Spirit to fill us. We're going to repent, ask for the Spirit to fill us. And then we're going to sing. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.